are tonight. And uh, I was thinking as uh, uh, I was thinking about how to set this up. Is there anything more aggravated than some, aggravating than something that won't work? Think about the times you've gone out. Hopefully this doesn't happen very often. It doesn't seem to happen as much as it used to. But uh, remember the days when you go out to start a car and the thing just wouldn't start. And you'd crank and crank and crank and crank and crank and crank and uh, wouldn't start. Just aggravating. It's just supposed to. Think about something, maybe an app on your phone, something it's supposed to do and you push on it and it doesn't open up. It's just kind of aggravating when those kind of things don't happen they're just supposed to work and we get frustrated what's the matter well this won't work well it doesn't always work well it's supposed to I paid for it too I downloaded the right stuff I've done the right maintenance on it whatever it is it's just supposed to work what do you think God feels and thinks when he looks down on earth and we don't do what we've been created to do and that's called sin. We are defiant against the Lord. We are self-centered. Uh, all of those kind of things. And so we're not working. And think about what he sees when he looks at the expanse of the earth. I got off of a plane in India. And uh, when I walked off of the plane into the airport, there was this big, grotesque, disgusting, demonic-looking goddess that was there and uh, I don't remember what she was called or anything like that but she's supposed to be the one who protects travelers the goddess of all of that can you imagine what God sees when he sees people look to idols bow down before idols and uh, all of that type of thing when we were designed and made to give glory to the Lord and to serve Him and to honor Him. What must it have been like when there were only two people on the entire face of the earth and they only had one job and that was to fellowship with the Lord to give Him glory? Can you imagine when in His omniscience He knew that the serpent had talked Eve into taking a bite out of the fruit and that she gave it to Adam and Adam walked into it with his eyes wide open and uh, disobeyed the Lord. I mean, it wasn't like he was having to watch over billions of people, which wouldn't be hard for him anyway, but all of his attention was on Adam and what happened, Adam didn't do what he was created to do. And that's what mankind, humankind, has been doing ever since. We go our own way. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to uh, his own way. Think about all the verses that you know about that. There is none that does good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's not like we just do it once. I mean, if I've got a car that won't start, and let's say I have the car for... 10 years and out of that 10 years there's only one time it doesn't start I'm actually going to brag about that car and I'm going to feel pretty good about it I've had this car for 10 years and you know what there's only been one time it didn't start it's been a good vehicle but what if the car didn't start nearly every time I needed it to start 
What if I had to start it five times during a day to run errands? And what if it started once out of that five times, but the other times I couldn't get it to start? Would I be happy with that vehicle? And think about us. It's not just that we have sinned once in our past, but we keep on doing it. And it's not that we're not aware of it. We know what sin is, and yet we keep doing it. Sometimes we repeat the same sins over and over. Think about what is going on in the heart and in the mind of God. Now we look at Psalm 115, written, we think, after the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon, and yet they still seem to be kind of maybe sinning differently, but they're still sinning. And so the psalmist writes some things here, and I want to try to answer the question, why does God get so upset? Why is he so angry about idolatry? There were people that he put to death. There were nations that he judged. Even his own people, the nations of Israel and Judah, were taken into captivity because of idolatry. There were kings that you read about in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings that died because of idolatry. They had their kingdom taken from them because of idolatry. Well, what is the big deal, we might say? Well, I want to uh, remind you of a few verses that are in the New Testament so that you don't think that this is just an Old Testament, ancient Israel type thing. 1 Corinthians 10, 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Revelry is uh, whatever activity they were doing. It probably involved alcohol. It was very loud and noisy. Probably had some uh, sexual implications in all of that. And uh, what does the Bible say? The Apostle Paul said that's what they did in the Old Testament. Learn from that and don't get involved in idolatry. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. We're to run from it. I don't know when, except in India, I've ever really been confronted with idolatry. There must be something else I'm not thinking of. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Telling a church, telling New Testament believers like us, keep yourselves from from idols. And Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, or some translations say covetousness, which is idolatry. So when I read all of that, it's on the heart of God even for New Testament believers and then we are told to run from it, stay away from it. And then there are some things mentioned in conjunction with it, like greed or covetousness and uh, other things that we're warned about that we're to stay away from. And so I thought maybe we're more idolatrous than we think. Because if there's anything that gets our attention or distracts our attention away from God... Well, that would be an idol. If there's anything we're more excited about, that we love more, that we're more enthusiastic about than we are our Lord, then that certainly could be an idol. And the idol may not be something we bow down to externally, 
But we're going to see it may be something that we bow down to internally. No one else would ever see it except God. No one else would ever know about it except God because we keep it very carefully hidden in the recesses of our heart. And we have things that we lust after, things that we crave, things that we're dissatisfied with, things that we are angry about, all kinds of things that are bottled up in there. And if we don't deal with them in a 1 John 1.9 way and truly humble ourselves and uh, get away from all of that, then we could fall into the range um, of what God would say is an idolater. And so I want to say, uh, answer the question, why is it that it bothers him so much? Okay, so I want you to take your Bibles and we're going to read the entire psalm. We're not going to talk about all of it, but we're going to read all of it so you get the gist and the context of it. Psalm 115. It'll be familiar. Parts of it will be. There have been songs written about some of these verses. Uh, let's start with verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Now that's kind of the topic sentence, and that tells us a lot about everything else he's going to say. And he says that this is supposed to happen. Why? Well, here's the reason. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles or the nations or the, the goyim in Hebrew, why should they say, so where is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold and the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. This is going to be very reminiscent of Psalm 135. Eyes they have, but they do not see. And they have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. And feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. That's the contrast. Quit trusting in idols, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He's thought about us, paid attention to us. At one point it says his thoughts toward us outnumber the sands of the sea. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's that theme again. Verse 16. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth... He is given to the children of men. We have been given dominion over the earth. We're stewards of the earth. We are to control it and use it for all of our needs. Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. And he's talking about you never seen a corpse give praise to the Lord. And those who were in hell don't give praise to the Lord. They continue to sin and continue to blaspheme. That's why hell is eternal. Verse 18, but, 
It's a contrast. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And then he ends it with praise the Lord. It's our word hallelujah, praise to the Lord. And so this is one of the, they're called the Hallel Psalms, one of the praise psalms, and they tell us to praise the Lord. But they also give us some clues as to why God is unhappy when we don't and when we uh, are giving glory to idols or anything else besides him. And he uh, gives us some things to think about. So that's what I want you to do. Put your thinking cap on, as my kindergarten teacher used to say to me, and uh, think about all of this. Don't check your mind at the door. Engage in all of this. Follow along. When I put the points up there, I generally have the part of the scripture that it comes from so you'll know where I'm getting it and you can think about it. And you'll think about some things that uh, doubtless are different than what I will think of and the Holy Spirit will speak to you through his word. Why does God, why is he so angry about idolatry? Why is this such a big deal throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament? Okay, first one, because it inflates human ego. It inflates human ego as if we needed any help. Isn't that right? We're arrogant. We're proud. I mean, we've got a whole system of belief now that our whole culture is bought into that says there's no God and there's no creator and everything you see is wonderful and as expansive and as organized and as beautiful and as detailed as it is. Lucky. Random chance. Mutations. Mistakes. There would probably be a whole different set of dominant animals on the planet except for us, except a mastodon ate him or something. And therefore he didn't, uh, you know, reproduce. And so our ancestors, our monkey ancestors did. And so here we are. Aren't we something? Aren't we something? And so we take glory and we try to rob the Lord's glory all the time because we really do think we're something our egos are so inflated not to us O lord why would that even have to be said because that's what we do we try to take glory and we fail to give it to his name and uh, he says do it because of mercy some translations say because of your covenant love and because of your truth now think about this we like to receive glory you know what that means credit we like credit President Reagan had a thing on his desk. It said, it's amazing what can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. And that's the failure in politics, isn't it? But it's also the failure in your home. It's the failure in relationships. You kind of like to have credit for what you do. You like to be recognized. You like to be acknowledged. And that causes trouble tremendously in a church even. Instead of giving the glory to God, we want to give it to ourselves. And we get upset that no one notices. And it makes me think of a saying that you're doubtless familiar with that my father-in-law used to say a lot. And he asked this question. Did you notice... That nobody noticed. And that's a problem for all of us. Because we notice that kind of stuff. And we compare with other people. And we think we're not getting our due or our credit. And the psalmist said, hey, just stop. Hit the pause button on that. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name. Give glory. 
And so we like to be important. We like to be influential. We like to have our name, make our name great. We want it to be remembered and we want it to uh, have power, you know. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to be that person that when things are going the wrong way, they mention your name and all the politicians quake in their boots? You know, you've seen a lot of movies about that powerful person in that small town and that powerful family in that small town and uh, everything revolved around them and nothing happened unless that family, unless that person approved it. And if you went against them, they could make you pay. Your body would end up in a swamp or something like that. We've all seen those movies. Well, we may not aspire to be that kind of a person, but at the same time, there is something inside of us that we would like for people to know what we want, to know how we want it, and to know why we want it, and just do what we want. Value what we value and do what we would like to do. We all like that, and we build great monuments to ourselves and big tombstones even and uh, statues, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we also get our feelings hurt over the pickiest, pettiest little things. Somebody didn't say something just right or the wrong tone of voice or something that they didn't say that they should have said. You know, they were given prayer requests and they got everybody's name but my great nephew's best friend that I turned in and, you know, it's that kind of a thing, isn't it? And so that's just who we are and how we live. So the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, listen, you've got enough of an inflated ego thinking that you deserve things, thinking that you have rights, thinking that you are special, thinking that you have more insight than other people do and you have the right to critique and to judge and con to condemn other people. And so the psalmist says, you know, back up, put on the brakes. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And uh, you notice here it's, it has this idea about um, where he brings up this thing about mercy. Now, why would he throw mercy in the mix? Is God merciful? Of course he's mercy, merciful. But think about this. Who needs mercy? See, I, don't, uh, I didn't wake up this morning and call the county judge and say, Oh, judge, be merciful to me. You know why? Because I don't think I've done anything that a judge would be interested in not at this point anyway so no need to ask for mercy I'm good and if the judge called me up and he said Greg you know you're waking up this morning and everything I just want you to know if you need any mercy give me a call you know what I would say okay okay thank you I guess and I'd put it down and I'd probably go, Sammy, that was the weirdest thing. A judge called me up and told me that I could have mercy if I needed it today. What's that all about? And I think that's what happens when we sing, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Am I in trouble? Why do I need mercy? Now, if I'm arrested and I'm brought before uh, the judge in arraignment, and I've got serious charges against me, uh, and I'm in handcuffs or in an orange jumpsuit or something, I might say to the judge, please, judge, have mercy on me. 
have mercy. Why? Because I've done something wrong and I deserve something bad and deserve something severe. Now the psalmist is pointing out here, we don't think we're all that bad and we don't really think that our mistakes, as we call them, and our sin and our, well let's put it this way, our failure to give God glory 24-7 is all that big a deal. So mercy kind of escapes us. The average person in America and around the world today, they don't really see their need for mercy because they don't think they've done anything that's all that bad. And so they fail to see their sin. They fail to see the wrath of God. They fail to see their law breaking. They fail to see the penalty for sin being an eternity in the lake of fire. So mercy just vroom, right over their head. Now I can point out some people that <laughs> sure need mercy, can't you? But not me. I think I'm doing pretty good right this. That's the way the Jews were living and that's kind of the way we tend to live as well. We don't think about the mercy that God has given us that we're not in hell. Notice he also brought up the thing of truth. Boy, that's a big one today. How many people believe that there is an, uh, a standard, an objective standard of truth? Well, not many. As I told you uh, Sunday morning, 37 or 39 percent something like that of not liberal pastors evangelical supposedly conservative pastors do not believe in objective truth and do not believe that the bible is the word of god okay why because in our culture we think truth is whatever you want it to be have you ever heard anybody on tv or something they say well this is my truth now, you may have a different truth. You can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and uh, that's just the way we'll leave it. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? Oh, we're so tolerant. We just let everybody have their own truth, whatever they want to have. Okay? Go on a talk show sometime. And when they are nice and saying, we need to be tolerant, we need to be loving, and let everybody do what they want to do. Do your own thing, baby. Raise your hand and say, I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven and without Christ you're going to go to hell. And you'll find out real quick how tolerant they are. But that's my truth. Well, you can't have that kind of truth. Tell them that you think it is child abuse and criminal to give kindergarten children puberty-blocking drugs and to allow a child who's under the age of 18 to go through surgery where they will be mutilated and their sex will be changed and you'll find out how tolerant they are and you'll find out if you're allowed to have your truth or not i mean you won't be on twitter you won't be on facebook you won't be on youtube any of that kind of stuff why because in their tolerance and letting everybody have their truth what they're saying is let us sin the way we want to sin let us live the way we want to live I like what one guy said, religious freedom is really every man's right to go to hell in his own way. Isn't that true? And so we look at this and because of that, we don't think we need the truth. What does that mean? Well, Jesus told us in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. 
It's a rejection of the word of God. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want anyone telling us what we have to believe. We don't want to have to conform to God and his standard and his law or anything else. We're going to do what we want to do. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, it says in the book of Judges. Boy, that's the way we are. And so because of that, we get an inflated ego. I don't need any mercy. Give it to somebody who needs it, we might say. Well, what about truth? Well, you can have your truth, I'll have my truth, and my truth says I can bow down before a golden calf if I please. See, that's the way we live. I can be angry and lustful and greedy if I want to be. I can be indulgent if I want to be. I can violate my marriage vows if I want to because this is up to me and I determine truth. And if enough of us want to make pedophilia legal, we'll do it. And who will stop us? That's the ego of humanity. Aren't we seeing that played before our very eyes constantly? Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your mercy and because of your truth. Look at the next thing. Why is God angry about idolatry? Not only does it inflate our ego, can you imagine? But it also causes us to accept a faulty premise. Now the Gentiles, the nations, the Goyim, they're saying, so where is their God? Every time Israel had a, natu a, nat a natural disaster, huh, look at that flood, wiped out a lot of people. <laughs> Where's their God? This God that is so great, why didn't he stop the flood? And then they bow down before their idols and they say, thank you, O Baal, that we did not have a flood. And they offer sacrifices to them. Israel gets defeated in battle. Huh, where's your God? You can't even see your God. Why didn't you take your God out in front of you with your battle? We take our golden calf. We take our statue of Baal. We take Dagon out in front of us and we win battles and you don't. Where's your God? And it was sarcastic. It was a taunt looking at them. Oh, well, the Jew might say, our God cannot be seen. And they would laugh. Can you believe it? They're worshiping air. They're worshiping empty space. And that's what the Canaanites would do. That's what the nations would do. And you know what? Israel would fall for it. Maybe we do need a God we can see. After all, that's what they did in the wilderness when Moses is on Sinai. They tell Aaron, give us gods. And when the Golden calves were made. What did he say? Behold the God that brought you out of Egypt. They wanted something they could see. Something they could touch. Something that was here. Something that they could make. Something that would behave the way they wanted it to behave. In other words, anytime anybody makes an idol, you know what they're really saying? I want to be God. And I will make a God that will conform to my image and do what I want him to do. So if I bring a grain offering, this is what I expect. Chetching, it ought to come out the way I want it. But I look over here at Israel, I can't see their God. What's their God look like? Where is he anyway? Is he in that box in the temple? Is he, uh, where, where in the world is he? That's what they were saying. And there's a faulty premise on that. 
Because people think that if they can't see it, it must not exist. If they can't locate it, then it must not exist. It's like an atheist standing up in front of school children and going, you believe in God? And a couple of kids say yes. Okay, then tell your God to stop these keys from hitting the floor. Where is your God? What kind of a God is that? He can't even stop keys from hitting the floor? And you believe in Him. What a fool you are. That's the game that they play. It's nothing new. That's what the Gentiles were doing when they were in Israel. And the sad thing is, Israel accepted the faulty premise. If you can't see him, he must not be there. If he didn't do exactly what you wanted him to do, when you wanted him to do it, he must not be real. Give us an idol. Give us something we can see. Give us something we can follow. Give us something that brings instant gratification and pleasure. And the Gentiles said, where is your God? That's what they were saying. They were saying that God can be seen, that God has a specific location, and that God is obligated to reveal himself at man's demand. Can you hear the sarcasm? It's just dripping. Where is your God? Oh, nice God you have there, Jews. Working for you. You know the Dr. Phil thing? How's that working for you? How'd that turn out for you? That's what they're saying. You worship him. You offer sacrifices to him. You follow him. You are following his morality. You restrict your diet because of what he says. How's that working for you? Just dripping with sarcasm. Steve Lawson says, The surrounding pagan nations taunted Israel when it was hit hard by natural disasters are crushed by foreign enemies. Upon observing the defeats and the trials of Israel, they mocked God's people saying, Where is their God? And the Jews despised this Gentile taunt. It's been going on for a long time. Why do you do what you do? Why do you go to church on a Wednesday night? Why in the world do you give money to this God? What are you getting out of it? And so that's why the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, is attractive to a lot of people because they go and they get something out of it. It's all about them. And yet the psalmist said, not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. I don't know why God puts up with any of us when I read this. Do you? Number three, it reduces God to a trinket. Isn't that what it says? Our God's in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases, but their idols are what? Just silver and gold, the work of man's hands. You can wear their God on a necklace if you want to. You can set their God on a shelf while you're doing dishes if you want to. You can put your God on your dashboard if you want to. I mean, it's just a trinket. Kind of like when you are in a an airport, and you're on your way home from a trip, and you're going, yeah, I really ought to get the kids something. Well, you don't really have, your luggage has already been checked and everything, and you don't want to carry anything big around. So I've seen some people carrying those huge stuffed animals, and I go, yeah, uh, how about a souvenir keychain? You know, we'll get something like that. And they'll love it, and they'll keep it. And uh, I got Jenny one time back in, it was 1992, and it's a little bitty ceramic, uh, bunny rabbit 
about the size of, you know, what I'm showing right there. She still has it. And uh, I told her when I got it, you know what? I saw this and I thought of you because this bunny has big blue eyes just like you. And she said, you thought of me? And uh, she's kept it all these years, all these years. But God's not a trinket. God's not a good luck charm. You ever seen somebody pull a rabbit's foot out? Maybe they have their keys on it or a four-leaf clover or the lucky penny or horseshoe or anything like that. We look at that and we say, eh, it's just superstition. It doesn't really mean anything. Well, that's the way a lot of people are about their gods. And it makes God into a trinket. I call him out and I, I, I rub the lamp and the genie is supposed to come out. You know, that's kind of the way it is, isn't it? And uh, there was a, a preacher, a false prophet, that actually said that his view of God was like Aladdin's genie. That's kind of the way we think. And so we carry little medals and we carry little crucifixes and we carry little things like that that we have and, and they're supposed to make us lucky. They're supposed to protect us. They're supposed, all of this kind of stuff. This is what the psalmist is talking about. Here it is. We have a God who rules and reigns in the heavens. He cannot be contained in a little amulet or anything like that. He cannot be contained by the, even the Ark of the Covenant. He cannot be contained by the temple. This is a God who is everywhere. He's not just in Israel. He's not just in your life or in your house. He's everywhere. And you would reduce him and worship him as though he were a trinket that you picked up in the airport. Oh, but you say, no, no, he's not a trinket. He's big. I saw a God in India, Ganesh. And uh, every year when we would go there in the fall, we always hit there at the festival of Ganesh. And people are out on the streets having block parties and things like that. And this... Um, uh, Ganesh, he looks like, uh, well, have you ever seen the University of Alabama? They have a big elephant. Well, Ganesh is a big elephant. We used to tease Brother Ron and said, these people are all Alabama fans like you. And uh, they would build them, and they would build them on trailers, and they would build them in the back of a truck, and some of them were huge. We saw one that was on a semi, huge. And they do their rituals and whatever they do. Then they drive it to the river, the Ganges, and they throw it in, they throw it in the river. It's just bizarre kind of stuff. So sometimes their trinkets are big. But nonetheless, they throw them in the river. Well, what are they doing? What's going on with all of that? It's man being in control. I make the God as big as I want him. Because some Ganeshes were little. You could carry them in your pocket. Some would fit on the back of a semi. But you notice the key is man is always in control. I'll have a God that I want, that I choose to worship, and then I will make him like I want to make him. Someone said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And now mankind is returning the favor. You made us in your image, I'll make you in my image. And so we make God whatever we want him to be. And he's not to be trifled with, and he is not a trinket. Our God is a spirit, Jesus said to the uh, woman at the well, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our God is the creator that keeps coming up time after time after time. Well, doesn't everybody know that? All you have to do is go to a biology class. 
in uh, elementary school, high school, college. Nobody believes that anymore. So it is an issue, isn't it? And uh, our God is living. He has a will. He determines things. He is powerful. And he is able to do whatever he pleases at any time that he pleases. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he got it right when he said, None can stop your hand or say, What are you doing? Nobody has that power. God can impose his will on any of us. And so he's nothing like the idols. They have eyes, but they can't see anything. They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. Mouths, but they can't speak. Feet, but they can't go anywhere. Hands, but they can't touch anything. I mean, think about it. The futility of all of that. And uh, this is something that uh, those who love the Lord would say to the Gentiles. You don't understand. Israel's defeats, as well as Israel's victories, are God's doing. They're not his failures. They're God's doings. So when they were carried off into captivity, God made it really clear. I did this. This is not just bad luck. This is not just circumstances. This is not even about the Babylonians. I did this because of your sin. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, which you ought to sometime, he says over and over, by the way, when I brought you back after seven, 70 years, I didn't do it for your sake. I did it for my name's sake. You were making me look bad among the heathen nations. So I brought you back out so I could show my power once again. We're just not good at giving God glory in the bad times or the good times, are we? Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. It's not some stupid little thing that you made that's ugly and weird and creepy and all of that. Our God rules over all the earth. Can't put him in one place or hang him around your neck or carry him in your pocket or put him in a box. You just can't do that. What a low view of God. And number four, God hates idolatry because it always causes evil to spread and expand. It doesn't just stay in one place. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 22, and we'll just read together a little bit of a story here that illustrates all of this. And it's about a king, uh, well, there's a king named Hezekiah. You've heard of him. And uh, he was a good king, but his son was rotten. I mean, really, really hold your nose, stink to high heaven, rotten. And his name was Manasseh. So let's read about Manasseh in 2 Kings 22. Okay? Say, so how far are we going? Uh, I'll tell you when to stop. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. It's not Queen Elizabeth, but it's pretty good. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations around them, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. The Canaanites, in other words. Verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and he made a wooden image, Ahab, king of Israel, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped 
all the host of heaven. He was an astrologer and served them. And he also built altars. Are you ready for this? He also built altars in the house of the Lord. Well, you want to talk about bold. Going into the temple and building altars to things that God made. Of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. They're, they're doing astrology in the temple. Mm. Verse 6. Also he made his son, you ready for this? To pass through the fire. He murdered his son. Sacrificed his son by burning him alive to his false gods. You want to tell me things can't degenerate very quickly? One generation after Hezekiah, this stuff is happening in the temple. No wonder God was angry. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. Bad. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. It's like he's poking God in the eye and daring him to do anything about it. Okay? Verse 7, he even set a carved image of Asherah, that is a sexual thing, that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers. And here's all you have to do. Only if they are careful to do according to all that I've commanded them. And according to all the law that my servant Moses had commanded them. But they paid no attention. And look at this. Here's the point. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So God said, all you Canaanites, the judgment and wrath of God is going to fall upon you for 400 years of idolatry, and I'm going to throw you out and give this land to my people. And now his people are doing worse things than the Canaanites. The Canaanites were disgusted by Israel. Boy, when you can disgust a Canaanite, You've really done something. When you're too bad for the Canaanites, when you are living in such a way that even the lost world looks at you and they go, oh, man, that is disgusting. Boy, that is gross. You've really crossed the line. And that's what had happened here. Why does God hate it? Because it doesn't ever stop where you say it's going to stop. It spreads. It moves. It becomes more evil. It becomes more disgusting. It becomes more perverted. It goes further and further and further and further till you're even bringing sin into the worship of the true and the living God. That's what was happening there. And then number five. We have a God who loves to answer prayer. But number five, he hates idolatry because it hinders prayer. And all these people are going to the temple and they're offering up these sacrifices and they're praying all of these prayers. But it's all just words. It's all just rituals. 
and God isn't hearing it. Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, that's what he called Ezekiel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Should I let them even pray? Because by the time Ezekiel writes this, they had learned their lesson. No more idols in the house of God. No more idols by the kitchen sink. No more idols around our neck or in our, our pocket. No more going to the high places to offer up sacrifices to false gods. Whoo, Lord, we have learned our lesson. And God is saying here to Ezekiel, not really. All you did was learn how to hide your idolatry. And you have idol idols in your heart and you expect me to hear your prayers. You expect me to bless. You expect me to be impressed. Woo, look at them. Boy, look at that money they're giving. Impressive. Oh, listen to the way they form their prayers. Wow, that was something. Oh, I can't help but bless them. God says to all of us, I'm not fooled. I know who you really are. I know what you really love. I know what you really worship. I know what you really sell out to. And I know that I'm always on the back burner. I know that my church is always on the back burner. I know that my will is always on the back burner. But oh, that baseball tournament. Boy, I can't miss that. Can't miss that. Oh, that new movie that comes out. Oh, that rock group that's going to perform or that country group that's going to perform. You know, uh, boy, can't miss that. I've been waiting for that. That's on my bucket list. And God looks down and says, and you want me to answer your prayer when I am so far down on your priority list? Because most of the time, I do that to give the benefit of the doubt. God's not even on the bucket list, is he? Nobody says my bucket list. I want to see the Grand Canyon. I want to see Mount Rushmore. I want to, you know, go to the whatever museum and all of that. I want to eat this type of food. Hey, you know, has anybody ever put on their bucket list, I want to read Calvin's Institutes? My bucket list, I want to read the Confessions of St. Augustine. I want to memorize the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John or anything like that. See, God is so far down and we fit Him into our lives in just wherever we have anything spare. You do it, I do it, all of us do it and some do it worse than we do. Granted, granted. But when you read this psalm and he opens it up by saying, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. That means something, folks. And that tells us where our heart needs to be. And the old hymn says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why? Because our hearts wander so fast and so quickly. And the glory of God doesn't even enter our minds most of our day.
But oh, when tragedy happens, God help us, God bless us. Oh God, you've got to do something. The Lord says, you've got idols in your heart. Why should I listen to you? So tonight, I encourage you to do some self-examination, tear down some idols, and make sure that you are set in your heart on giving glory to the Lord. Be careful. You can slip into it very, very easily. Would you pray with me? Father, we think about what people do and the way the world is, how we live, and we find that we are as guilty as anybody else when you look in the heart. Dear God, forgive us. Cleanse us. Help us to see what's good and bad and right and wrong. Help us to love you supremely. Let us love our God supremely. And let us love each other too. Not to us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you'll take your uh, prayer list tonight. One is, is just about over. And... Uh,